to Out of the Box Radio with me, your host, Christine Blasdale. Out of the Box Radio is a weekly podcast of audible ear candy dedicated to bringing a fresh perspective on this thing that we call life. And each and every week, we're going to be diving into the topics that matter most with lively conversations on issues such as health, wellness, and transformational healing, all with the goal of creating a better world and becoming a happier human being. I will be your tour guide for this epic adventure, and each and every week we're going to be embarking on a journey with the ultimate goal being transformation to our highest potential. And now, let's get out of the box. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Out of the Box with Christine. I am your host, Christine Blasdale, and I'm very, very happy that you joined the program today because we have a very exciting program. Why? Well, have you ever wondered about the people who actually really control the world? Have you ever thought about that? My guest this hour knows a little bit about those people because he has not only studied this phenomenon, but has just written a brand new book called Giants, the Global Power Elite. His name is Peter Phillips. He was the former director of Project Censored and Media Freedom Foundation, and he is also professor of political sociology at Sonoma State University. And a long time, oh my goodness, Peter, I've I've known of your work for many, many years, and I respect the work that you do for so many years, and I think it's been a long time since I've spoken to you. So uh, welcome to the show, and I'm just so glad that uh, the, of the work that you've been doing and this current uh, work that you're doing right now on this book, Giants, the Global Power Elite. Welcome to Out of the Box. Christine, thanks for having me on. It's exciting to do this. Uh, this new book is just coming out, and this is actually the first radio uh, opportunity I've had to talk about it. So it's really not officially out for three more weeks. Well, and, you know, well, your subject matter, I'm I'm guessing after, you know, flipping through the book and realizing that a lot of the, the media corporations that would be doing any kind of, of like, you know, reviews of this or, or um, interviews, uh, there's, a, there's, a, a f- there's a few of those large media corporations that are probably wouldn't be so excited about getting this information out. But just to, for our listeners, to give them a little bit of a background, I would love if you could just tell um, uh, folks about the work that you've done prior in particular I really appreciate the work you've done with Project Censored and um, and covering these the most important news stories that the mainstream media hasn't covered. Can you talk about a little bit about your work from Project Censored days? Well, I uh, was I inherited the project from Dr. Carl Jensen in 1996 and managed. I was director for 14 years and in that time put out 14 annual censored books. Um, which you know circulate around the world are still online, and they, they covered they covered the most important news stories the corporate media didn't cover, and so every year you know hundreds of students and and faculty from various campuses all over the country would nominate stories, and uh, then we would vote collectively and select what the, the top twenty five that we thought were the most important, and and, and that's just a boilerplate. Thing that we've been doing it, and we have a new book coming out, censored uh, 2019, which will be like our 25th uh, or 27th book, 
and um, the project's been around for for over over uh, forty years since nineteen seventy six. So it, it's um, a long time media analyst uh, analysis critic critical media project that talks about uh, how we don't get the whole story. I it's it's so absolutely valuable in these times, and it's it's been um, for so many years such an important. Uh, publication, and I'm just so grateful, like I said, to the work that you've you've done on that um, over the years. And now, when we talk about media analysis, let's let our listeners. You know, we're a lot of people are in a very short attention span mode. Uh, there is this thing called the social media. You know, everybody's on social media, so it's a very quick attention span uh, that that folks have. But let's talk about media analysis. The if you do listen to anything or see anything on even on your social media there is this conversation or argument right that there is um uh fake news there is also those that say the liberal media and i i would just like to get your analysis of of the of the of the corporate media now we're not talking about wonderful progressive radio stations or of course individual podcasters and things like that but we're talking about you know the abc nbc cnn fox all those let's talk about that narrative of of course the the narrative of fake news and the liberal media well in one sense all news is essentially fake yes <laughs> exactly. it really is 80 percent of what we get on television news has been prepackaged or spun by a public relations firm. And um, it was Ben Bagdickian gave me that statistic uh, you know, almost 20 years ago, and it's been verified in a number of other studies that these big PR firms, Omnicom, WPP, Interpublic Group, they basically manage the news for the world. Uh, and they're doing it for profit, they're doing it for corporations, and, and they work for uh, various you know, private companies, and, but they also work for governments. So they can manage the news, um, WPP can manage the news, the Central Intelligence Agency or the, um, or, or the State Department. And so they're packaging news stories that, give, that have an agenda, um, what Noam, Noam Chomsky and, and Ed Herman called the, the propaganda model uh, over 25 years ago when they wrote their book on that. And it's biased. So... There's very little other than your local news stories and your auto wrecks and murders that you can trust on corporate media today. It's mostly um, misinformation or partial information and bias. And nothing proves that better than during when there's a ramp up to war. Um, and as, as you've covered, you know, for many years, when there is a ramp up for war, there are certain uh, industries, companies people that make a killing off of killing. And so we witnessed it with the ramp up for uh, before the Iraq war, uh, the war in Afghanistan. They were, you know, every day you would turn on the television, it would be these generals talking, right? And the generals happened to be on the board of some, you know, Lockheed Martin or some, you know, weapons manufacturer. You, later on, you find that out. But um it just it it's obviously there is a collusion going on, and a lot of Americans are I, I think they're not aware of it. But as you were saying, it's eighty percent of news is some type of PR spin. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Right. Wow. It's right in that range. 
And so we call public relations firms public relations and propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, because essentially there's, there's no difference between, you know, propaganda per se and, and public relations. They're all spinning a story or spinning an idea uh, for, for profit and benefit. And, you know, that's or political or political perspectives. Exactly. So that's a really important piece of understanding my book, Giants of Global Power Elite, because corporate media is protecting the wealthy. They protect the, the global 1%, which, which, of course, the Occupy uh, movement gave us that mantra, 99 versus 1%. And that was certainly a very important understanding. People get that. The 1%, um, people with assets over 700,000. Um, and there's 35 millionaires in that. And then we know about the, you know, the 2,000 plus billionaires in the world uh, from Fortune magazine. But what we don't know and what my book openly addresses is who are the core people um, in this 1% that set the policy and direction for protecting capital, uh, global capital growth and, and debt collection. These are a very small number of people. And it's uh, I identify 389 people in the book by name, uh, what corporations they're affiliated, what policy councils they're in, and, and, and their public net worth. So I looked up each of those in the companies that they're in and found out their stock holdings and that. So it's, it's a very data-centered book, but it lays out a sociology of power and a sociology of the 1% that we haven't seen before. There's been good good theory books on it, good writings about it, but this is concrete evidence that there's a, this core of, of people um, that control the world's wealth. And, and let me put it r- really straightforwardly. There's 17 companies that I call the giants. These are money management firms like BlackRock and Chase Manhattan Bank and Prudential um, that have over a trillion dollars in, in in money that they manage. So we're not talking billions here. We're talking trillions. And these 17 companies um, have $41 trillion collectively that they control. So it's BlackRock and Vanguard and J.P. Morgan Chase and UBS and Bank of America and Barclays, State Street, Fidelity, the Bank of New York Mellon, um, and, and, and many others, Prudential, Morgan Stanley, and, and foreign ones as well, French and, and German. These 17 asset management firms in 2017 controlled $41 trillion worth of wealth. What's amazing about this is that their board of directors, and I looked up every single one of them, and there's only 199 people. So these 199 people are making the decisions of investments for now, now it's close to $50 trillion worth of wealth in the world. Now, so when we say wealth, I mean, you know, a company has wealth and owns assets and, and, it, and it may have factories and things like that, but this is cash. So it's, it's you know, the whole wealth of the world is like $250 trillion. But when it comes right down to cash, this is a control of majority of the cash in, in the world by just a few hundred people. It's very concentrated, very controlled. That's not all their money. You know, they've got 35 millionaires. They give their money to BlackRock to invest somewhere. 
But the people who run BlackRock are the ones making the decisions where to invest that money. And one of the problems they have, this concentration of capital wealth, the problem they have is they have more money than they've got good places to invest it. So they have surplus capital, and they need to find places to, to put that. And so that's what led to the subprime mortgage breakdown in 2008. They were investing in it knowing that those were risky investments, but they had no other place to do it. And so, so they, you know, they practically lost it. I mean, they, they, they admitted that they you know, almost lost the whole, the whole shebang worldwide in terms of capital. It could have collapsed completely. They think they've tried to fix that now, but they, but they haven't. So there's things that happen. They have this surplus capital. There's two ways that they they help that help, the government helps them spend it. One is wars. Yeah. So permanent permanent war um, allows for um, expen- blowing up of things, expending money. Governments you know reinvest, and and these private companies, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, are all heavily invested in by these giant companies. I mean, BlackRock alone has like. 20 billion invested in those three those three companies and those are the you know making war as a way of using up surplus capital that returns a profit to, to the capitalists the other way is buying up public resources so you know the push to you know privatize everything whether it's public you know public education or prisons or Mm-hmm. You know, buying up water rights, everything is commodified. So we're privatizing the world, so to speak, and it creates um, a conflict of continued concentration of capital that's protected by every government that's involved in capitalism in the world. Well, yeah, the, and and then with the with the uh, looking at the prisons, when you privatize prisons, and you're looking at a profit model then you're going to be trying to fill up those prisons uh, as much as possible. What's weird is the whole is the taxpayer. You know, there's a there's a bleed in there with the taxpayer when when the U.S. government um, declares war and they go to war with whatever country they choose of the you know, the the country of the the country of the week, whatever one they want to go and invade through some uh, campaign that they say, you know, that they're holding weapons of mass destruction or this or that, right? Whatever the PR is going to be spinning. When the U.S. goes to war, Peter, does the U.S. government or the institution known as the U.S., does it borrow money from banks in order to fund that war? Well, yeah, sometimes. Or, or they the banks just create money. Uh, it's right. They, they buy, they, you know, the Federal Reserve just can create money, but they buy um, stocks in these companies, and then the government is buying airplanes and tanks and bombs and weapons uh, from private companies. So yes, um, that's why our our budget for the military is, is so high in the U.S. It's close to a trillion when you count the veterans' benefits and things like that. So it's. It's the biggest part of, of all the money, all the taxes that we have, well over half. And we spend more on the military than the rest of the world combined. So um, it is a big supporter of privatized capital and profit making that supports not only the giant investment companies, but the, um, you know, the, the armaments industry as well. And they're all interconnected. 
which I think yes. my book is amazing in that capacity, and no one else has ever done this. Those 17 giants are all invested in each other. So there's one, I have this map of the, of the 17 giants and the little lines between their co-investments. They have over 400 billion invested in each other. So Bank of America or Goldman Sachs or, or um, uh, Barclays or Allianz or Prudential, Morgan Stanley, they're all invested in each other. So there's this big cluster of capital investment, 50 trillion plus, controlled by a few hundred people. And when I say cluster, it's a cluster because they're all in, in the same business, interconnected with each, with each other in terms of billions of dollars, sucking up any surplus capital in the world. So it makes the, the idea of a, of a cluster suck mm -hmm. sound, sound pretty appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. And, and, you know, and then that was in 2017. In 2018, there were three new companies uh, Wilmington, Northern Trust, and, and, and BNP that became trillion-dollar investment companies. And then there's another um, eight that are almost in giants. They're 800 billion plus, and they're all interinvested with each other. Oh. It, it, it's, it, it's just, it's you like know, a it's, it's just an amazing cluster of folks that are, you know, there's... 199, what I call the power elite managers of global capital, and they're 70% male, 84% white of European descent, um, you know, 59 MBAs, 22 G J JDs, 23 PhDs. They're all highly educated. Um, they all came from elite colleges, with the 28 of the 10% of them coming from Harvard or Stanford. Um, and then, and they're, you know, they're. <clears throat> 117 are from the United States, 59%. 22 each from Britain and France. 13 each from Germany and Switzerland. And then Italy, Singapore, India, Austria, Austria all have, have several. Japan, Brazil, South Africa. You know, the whole world is represented there, at least the whole capitalist world. So any country that has resisted capital investment. And that was the, you know, or where all the countries where we've seen regime changes for supposedly humanitarian reasons, which is a lie, or the weapons of mass destruction. These were dictatorships that were using their capital gains to benefit their own people. Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, I mean, and, and, uh, and, and in Syria as well. The, the, pro, the government was, in fact, helping the people there. If you're a dictator, you're exploiting your people and you're allowing capital to be invested and exploited, nobody's going to bother you. Right. But if you're, a, if you're a dictator that interferes with capital flow, capital investment in your own country, that's where a regime change needs to happen. And policies get established through policy groups uh, to make those recommendations of governments and intelligence agencies implement them. The you had mentioned in the beginning too one of the largest um, uh, of these uh, elites, I guess the uh, elite financial sector here, a company called BlackRock. This is a, a name that I would say if you asked anybody on the street, uh, do you know who or what BlackRock is? They couldn't tell you. And can you tell us uh, how much wealth that uh, BlackRock has? 
as far as um, capital investment and who well, who's at the helm of that? Who's 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 running BlackRock? A guy named Larry Fink from L.A. is is the manager, and he's got quite a story uh, history. But um, they had in seventeen they had five point four billion. I understand it's up over six. I mean billion trillion. It's up over six trillion now. And um, what they're particularly known for is their investment uh, uh, research in advance. So they have a couple thousand analysts that will look at all kinds of different investment possibilities and and what can what they can do with it. So Larry Fink, he was from Los Angeles. Um, he is sixty six this year. He came from a middle-class Jewish family in Van Nuys, um, UCLA BA, MBA from UCLA Anderson Graduate School of Management. And in 1976, he was hired at First Boston in their bond market. Um, next several years, he added over a billion dollars to He was one of their stars uh, until he made a mistake and he lost a couple hundred million dollars and they, they let him go. So... Um, He's deciding what to do, and he, one of the people that he knew was, was um, uh, work, he, decide, he goes to work for um, Blackstone Group, and he's involved there. And um, they set him up to develop BlackRock. They, they advance him money, and uh, then he uses this uh, derivatives and assess liabilities network called Aladdin which employs some 2,300 analysts to market test all the financial markets in the world. So he could, he would be able to produce better returns than any other, other investment company. And that's what, that's what built him up. I mean, that's where uh, Obama kept his money, probably still does. So, um, you know, Larry Fink, he married his high school sweetheart. He's got a couple, three kids. He's got a Upper East Side apartment, a 26 acre farm in North Salem and a house in Aspen. And he's worth about four or five hundred billion dollars today. Two. Wow. <laughs> and the you name some other you you now you name some power players that people are a little bit familiar with in, in the book. And folks, uh, if you're just tuning in, my name is Christine Blasdale. You're listening to Out of the Box with Christine. And my guest is Peter Phillips. He is the author of the brand new book, Giants the global power elite. And in the book, you also mentioned such um, familiar names as Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Jamie Dimon, who I don't know if people are familiar with Jamie, um, and of course, Warren Buffett. Let's just go through some of these uh, more famous well, folks. I, I, name, I name these people because they're famous. And and they're they're listed as you know in in uh, Forbes they're the one of the two thousand billionaires, and and Jeff Bezos now apparently is the largest with one hundred and fifty billion dollars, but these are individuals. They don't act in unison. There's not a sociology of billionaires. Some of them do, but for the most part, they're incredibly rich people. They're pr primarily oriented towards making more money, and they're not what I call part of the power elite network. The power elite network is people who are engaged in making policy recommendations to continue to allow capital to grow and expand worldwide. 
mm-hmm. and, and to protect it. So the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the you know the all of, of those transnational government organizations, the International Bank of Settlements, um, each of those ha- are kind of run by governments, or there's a percentage base. The more money you put in, the more power you get, but they're still under control of governments. My book analyzes how these elites, or what we call part of the transnational capitalist class, the upper 1%, um, or the 1,000th of 1% in actuality, how these people sociologically interact. And they do this through a number of organizations. The most important one is called the Council of 30. And that's based in Washington, D.C. It's Rockefeller funded, and and it has most of the major central bankers from from around the world. There's 32 people, 31 are men, one, there's one woman. And uh, they're part of the, they set the, the recommendations and, and an agenda for the World Bank, for the International Monetary Fund. I mean, they're the ones, their policy recommendations, they're like the central um, directors of, of global capitalism. And so, you know, it's a very small number of 30 people. That's crazy. Diamond is not part of that. Either is Fink. They may know them, they may interact with them, but that council is in particularly very important. The other one is the Trilateral Commission, which is international with some 400 members, but they have an executive committee of about 50 folks. And these are the people that identify them by, by name, by positions, by net assets um, and and their policy kinds of uh, points and who who they're involved with, and so and and so you have the trilateral commission and this council of thirty are the two primary non-governmental corporate elite policy recommendation groups that manage literally manage and give instructions uh, to the transnational banks and, and the policies globally. So like the Trilateral Commission, well, they'll put out reports. One of the reports they put out six years ago was the need to go back to containment um, and, you know, with Russia. And uh, they blamed uh, Putin for the, you know, what they called the invasion of, of the Crimea. Yes, right. And, and there was no invasion. They, they already had bases there. Um they, you know, 90% of the people in that region voted to separate from Ukraine and, and go with Russia. Russia had their bases. The U.S. CIA knew that Russia wouldn't, would not let go of that. But it allowed for them to start to negate Russia, to re-bring back the... The, um, the Cold War? The Cold War. And, you know, but that was a policy recommendation from the Trilateral Commission six years ago. So... <clears throat> You see the, the, the direction and the changes that occur. They do reports on Korea. They do reports on the, you know, uh, Afghanistan. All of that come is re- the policy recommendations that end up wor- they end up worldwide advisement, and the intelligence agencies pay attention to that. It's called protecting our vital interests, which is very much part of protecting global capital which is exactly what it is and it's under the guise of national security at that point it's under the guise of national security but it's under the guise of national security in france and germany Mm -hmm. uh and and everywhere else that's capitalist 
and they they, inter, they interact with each other and they cooperate. These governments do to protect global capitalism. That's the number one priority. That's the most important thing that governments are doing. That's the important, most important thing that Trump has done. Presidents are functionaries. Trump is a function functionary. That you know he you know lowered taxes on corporations. They they allowed the bank rules that Obama had put in after the collapse in 2008 to be readjusted, so so banks can further their growth and expansion. Um, he's been giving the elites exactly what they want. They don't care about you know his, how rude he is and that kind of stuff. Um, it's it's as long as he go as he's benefiting the central core of capitalism, they're going to keep him. Right. And the NS Democrats and Republicans both. Exactly. That's and that's something that I think a lot of people miss out on. And I even with, you know, with wonderful, very well-educated, progressive folks that I that I know and, and love, they still have this thing. It's this us against them. It's this blue versus red. Um, you know, the Democrats are better than the Republicans or then and then my, you know, some friends that are Republicans say that Republicans are better than. And I'm trying to tell them it's two wings of the same bird. It's exactly two wings of the same bird, and, and Trump is—he's—he's he's the pilot right now, flying. Which Jamie Dimon actually said, "Well, yeah, he's—he's he's the pilot flying our airplane, so we got to support him." Uh, even though the Trump advisory board, his Wall Street advisory board, uh, broke down last summer, particularly after he was making comments about all the, the race stuff that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't support, you know, support the capital growth that he's that he's bringing about. Right. So until Trump does something that really impacts profits and central capitalism, he's not they're not going to get rid of him. And nobody in Congress is going to make moves to impeach him for a variety of reasons. And we can clamor and claim and call him all the names we want. That just keeps us busy focusing on one guy when, in fact, we need to be focusing on global capitalism. Right, right. Concentrated wealth. And these 389 people I name in the book, I mean, these are the people that control the world. And they impact all of our lives, whether it's interest rates or taxes, everything. Not only here, but around the world in the wars. I mean, we've got troops, you know, special operation forces in 150 nations in the world. That's not to protect us. That's to protect capitalism, to protect investments, to protect wealth. And that's the name of the game worldwide. And it's it is it's such a game of like the Wizard of Oz, like pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> you know, the, the the front man, whoever the front man or front woman is, um, they may take the heat for a little bit, but it's a short time for that heat and and all of the deals that uh, are being worked in the background. Again, like you said, there is and there is no has nothing to do with a political um, uh, party's affiliation at all. Um, I was wondering too, like right now, you know, what the chatter is. Obviously, you can't turn on the radio or television without this whole thing the about Russia, 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 Russia. What's going on? Uh, Peter, what is this again? Kind of like a, a whipping up of the Cold War about Russia meddling in our. I mean, when they talk about Russia meddling in our elections, I always laugh because I know how I know how our intelligence agencies meddle, meddle not only meddle in other countries' politics, but I mean they've taken out you know democratically elected leaders, um, like 
taken them out. But um, what do you think this – what's going on? Because it, it's not about Russia and some type of uh, getting into a server or database or, or changing the election. But what do you think it is? It's investment capital wanting to get into Russia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, exclusively. It's all – I mean, Putin has reestablished uh, Russian control. Uh, Yeltsin let in the – you know, all the big investors and, and, and all of that. But Russia is an incredibly vast resource of oil, minerals, uh, wealth for investment. Natural gas, too. Right. Natural gas. And, and the global elites, they want access to that. They want to be able to invest there. As long as the government keeps the population under control, they, they're going to put billions into there if they can't. And um, that's the agenda. The agenda is regime change and the Trilateral Commission, no, it was the Atlantic Council, which is the other big policy group, which is a NATO advisory board, but it's now become a kind of a global military advisory group. The Atlantic Council made recommendations that there be regime change in Russia. Now, Putin knows that. He's totally aware of that. He knows that he's being undermined and, and repressed. Um, yet, you know, it's been very successful here in this country, blaming Putin, blaming Russia for supposedly uh, even getting Trump in, you know, trying to make that statement. Um, it's, I don't, there's no evidence that the Russians government had anything to do with that. Um, or if there is, they certainly haven't released it yet. It's not, it's not a priority. They want to have open capital investment everywhere in the world. And the countries that are resisting that are still independently controlled are China and Russia in particular, and Cuba, of course, and North Korea. But that's not that, that's not the agenda to try to get along. The agenda is to undermine that and get capital penetration everywhere in the world. Exactly. I was going to say uh, the the globe, you know, fifteen years ago. Fifteen years ago, it looked it looked quite different. Um, there wasn't the um, the taking over, well, the absolute destruction, and um, and and we're we're talking about also lives here. We're talking about millions of people being affected, um, killed or and or uh, injured. But with e- Iraq, with um, Afghanistan, and we know the the wealth of resources Afghanistan had. But w- under the Taliban, of course, there was also like a little bit of, well, somewhat of control on certain things. Um, I know the poppies, the poppy fields were being um, eradicated at that point, which is the heroin market, right? Which is the street heroin, I guess. Um, but of all those, and I don't, and I don't know if this was the, if this was the PNAC, the Project for New American Century, for in their. Um, very in their manifesto of the countries that needed a regi- regime change um, was uh, I know Iraq, Afghanistan, I believe it was Libya, um, Somalia. Somalia. So all of the the, the the checklist is pretty much almost done. They they've they've accomplished a lot, and they've accomplished that in a very short amount of time. What is remaining is still with Syria is still um, holding out, right? I mean, it hasn't been full, but Syria's my, holding out, even though we have they've pieces been pummeled in in Syria. Um, but the Russians basically bailed out the the Syrians and protected them. And then there's North Korea, right? We were ready to start a, fly, a no fly zone there. 
and in North Korea, and look how close we got to some. I mean, it was getting it was getting very strange that the conversations going on between North Korea and uh, the president, I mean, just the tweets and everything. But so North Korea still has not been um, uh, completely taken over, uh, uh, capitalized, right? And, and they have to resist uh, populist movements like in Venezuela, where uh, Maduro just got again got some sixty percent of the vote to continue and. Um, you know, the U.S. media calls him a dictator and, you know, a hardliner and all that kind of stuff. And it's ridiculous. They did that with Chavez, too. With they did that with Chavez. Yes, definitely. They helped lead a coup there. And then we have also, we have Iran. Right? Iran is independent and separate, very much so. And, and we're doing everything we can, certainly encouraged by Israel, to... Um, to try to, you know, have a regime change or even go to war with Iran. So these are dangerous, you know, um, saber-rattling activities worldwide. And at the same time, if we look at this, as wealth is concentrated, as these billionaires get wealthier, as the global giants pack more money into their management systems and the elites are policy-making governments to uh, allow that to happen, 80% of the world lives on $10 a day, and half of the world lives on $3 a day or less, and 30,000 people die every day from malnutrition and easily curable diseases. That's a slaughter. Yes. That, that's an abomination, and that's, you know, and that's going on every day. It's, you know, 9-11 killed 3,000 people. Well, 30,000 a day are dying worldwide and that's we don't get that's the crisis the humanitarian crisis of the world you know throw, throw pollution on top of that yes and you know this isn't going to work we can't continue to concentrate capital that's the message of my book to the elites okay you guys you can't continue to do this your, your grandchildren won't, won't have a world to live in when, when, um, what, what people also have to realize too, when there's, when there is a takeover of a country, and, and meaning all of their resources, then there is a clampdown on, on people um, as well. They'll either take over all the, let's say, all the water resources, and then jack up the price on it. They'll price gouge on it, so uh, they're not able to. You know, it's, it's cheaper for them to have a Coca Cola, and that's what they sell. You know, for cheap, compare uh, than to have a glass of water. Was there, there is a country, and I can't remember it right now, where once, I don't know if it, and I don't, uh, I don't want to mix the stories up, but I'm not certain if it was once the, um, uh, the World Bank got in there or uh, one of those uh, large financial institutions that come over and they basically take over the whole country or they, they loan the money to the quote unquote leader. There is one country where they were trying to make it illegal to capture rainwater. Bolivia. Bolivia. Talk about yeah. Bolivia because that... And, Obama and the privatization of water. The privatization of water. This is what... When you start to privatize everything, um, you know, imagine that you're driving a solar car and then you have to go and pay a tax for using the sunshine. Or, or that, that you can go into the mountains and there's a spring coming out of the ground, but it's privately owned and you can't drink it. I mean, that's, that's the direction we're heading, is the complete privatization of the world and all the resources and complete control. I mean, we can call that 
uh, fascism, but it's really it's going back to a state of feudalism, where the royalty are in fact the the corporate owners, the means of production at the corporate level, and the bank and investment level, and we're the serfs with zero power, and even if they let us vote occasionally, it, it's still not any kind of a democracy where our say has any any play whatsoever. That's the direction we're headed, and it's very scary. It's very terrifying to think about that. And unless and unless they can change this, and they and they say, "Well, we just have to keep growing. We'll grow out of this problem, um, and it'll trickle down to the poor." It doesn't trickle down. <laughs> it never trickles and, down. And what trickles? I mean, there needs to be a river of of capital that flows down to everyone in the world in order to keep the world sustainable and surviving. If not, we're we're really faced with you know, people are going to be faced with, with food riots and starvation. Um, and, you know, there'll be massive civil unrest. Um, and even, even you know, these elites, have, they have private military that they can hire. So the largest, second largest employer in the world is G4S out of Great Britain. They employ 650,000 people worldwide and their, their security you know, they run security for banks. They do prisons. They have private mercenaries. Um, they can put armed forces in the field to kill people. So we we have these private armies, private military co contractors that corporations can just hire. And they can build their own green zone to protect their elites. And the rest of us will be outside uh, getting by on, on basically nothing or a very polluted environment. And of course, with private armies, you have no, there is no law. There is, they're not held accountable um, as you would, well, you know, I don't want to talk about the military because there's there's a lot that are in the official military, official, uh, our official armies that are not also held accountable for what's going on. But with these uh, private armies, again, um, and security firms, we, uh, there was a name um, that was very, that uh, made quite a bit of money. Uh, and um, and had a, a lot of contracts. Blackwater, I believe, right? And Blackwater had a, a not such a, a a great history of stuff that they were involved in um, either. Or DynCorp, which I believe Cynthia McKinney actually had spoken about DynCorp and some of the nefarious things that they were up to as well. Blackwater is now called Academy. What's it called? And they, it's called Academy. <laughs> well, they changed their name. Yeah, and they merged with several other companies, so they're really huge. Ugh. I have a big training uh, field in North Carolina, um, but they 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 have their own air force now. I mean, it's it's uh, you know the secretary of education Dubois. That's her husband. I mean, her brother is, is the head of Blackwater. Oh, Devos. D is, is it Devos? Yes. Her, her brother is the head of Blackwater? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Oh. And, and now on top of it, what's, what is really so diabolical about this whole thing is that the the vulture mentality, because and, – and what it is is that it's always the – the people, the poor people who are the victims of the wars, right? They get the, the bombs dropped on them. They get the um, the environmental um, devastation from um, all of these, the military, um, uh, the, the uranium, the de quote unquote depleted uranium, which there's no such thing as depleted uranium. It's uranium, it's radiation. But then on top of it, they have to pay for it. 
They have to pay for the cleanup, so to speak. And it's either through the United States with the tax system. And so many Americans are just they're in la la land. They don't they don't understand what they're actually paying for when they do pay their taxes. But then there's also those um, those whole countries that are affected by these. The, uh, it was with Greece, right? Wasn't there a bailout with Greece and there was austerity measures and they're still hurting I, from my understanding. The entire yes. country of Greece is still uh, devastated by that. Yes. And and who's yeah. that comes down from the World Bank or the National Monetary Fund or even the banks that are loaning money to governments you know, globally uh, demand um, austerity, meaning they can't spend money on their own people. That's what it means. Plus, they, they ask for privatization so that uh, assets of the community uh, become privatized, become, you know, corporately owned. So you may have gone to a park that you enjoyed as a child, and now you have to pay a fee, and it's owned by a corporation. I mean, that's the direction that we're, that all of this is going. They need, they have surplus money. They don't know what to do with it. Um, so they want to buy things up. They want to privatize so they can get a return on it, That so the capitalism continue to grow and get returns. It can't do that indefinitely. That's the contradiction. Sooner or later, it will collapse. And that collapse could be really nasty for the world with civil unrest and wars and environmental destruction and, um, you know, a, a, talk, a total global war. And, and that would be catastrophic. So my book is aiming to convince these elites who we name, you know, that they've got to do something about this now to change the direction now that it has to happen so that at least if you look at look at this book, Giants of Global Power Elite, you can see who these people are that are making these decisions and, and, and that. They're, they're named. You can write them letters at their corporation. Um, you know, social movements of any kind can benefit from knowing who the people are that are pulling the purse strings of the world. And, you know, we need to reestablish the, the importance of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I, you know, if we go mm. back, you look at that document, um, which was written over 70 years ago, approved by the United Nations, as a moral document for what the rights of human beings are. And Article 25 clearly says that people have a right to housing, to employment, to adequate nutrition. I mean, that these are human rights. And, you know, we're violating that. And any social movement, any government, any progressives that want to make change in the world are going to need to find a standardized moral code. And there's nothing better than the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I so love that. I even people take out the pronouns where it says man and put in people, things like that. It doesn't matter. I mean, because back then, Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, her argument was man was meant both men and women. Well, yeah, it did then. Right, but right. it doesn't anymore. So we can just—it's still the the principles are the same. People have rights to leisure; they have you know rights to their own determination. They have rights to a nationhood and citizenship. All all of those are being violated every day around the world. Was, and they yeah. have you know to travel to you know it's just it, if we can stand on what those human rights are in terms of, of a moral code, that's the direction we need to go. And it's not being taught in public school. I teach it in every class I have. But it's not being taught openly in public schools, um, and it needs to be.
Oh, amen. Uh, This is is something, you know what, I will personally, um, I'm so happy that you mentioned that because I will personally actually look this up and then and and get this out um, to to friends and family as well and encourage them to get it out is because we've been we're being trained. We're being trained to have less and less and less, less money, work harder, less, um, uh, less freedom less um, rights, less everything. And we're being trained like that frog in the pot, you know, and you slowly, you don't, you don't, you just kind of keep the water getting a little warmer, a little warmer, and eventually we'll wake up and and have absolutely no rights to anything, um, uh, even our own bodies. And I think this is extremely important. So I'm going to, um, that'll be my personal, um, I guess my personal crusade to get out to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and get that out to to friends um, and and listeners as well. Um, Peter, it it gives us mm -hmm. a standard, whatever social movement you're in or whatever activism you're engaged in, this is a standard document that we can all agree on. Right. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat or purple. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, so what, in addition to being aware of, of those rights and what we deserve and what we need to um, uh, work for, what are some things, let's talk about solution oriented. What are some things that we can do uh, as a collective, you know, as a collective, as um, maybe as a, as a, as a country, as, as citizens, but what about also individually, uh, what can people do other than also picking up your book, which, <laughs> which we want people to do giants, the global power elite by Peter Phillips. What can people do, Peter? Well, the resistance movements are everywhere in the world. Um, of various resisting various aspects of repression all of them together collectively could could change stuff um but we don't try to have a prescription in the book of giants we just want to name who the ones are that are in charge and so the letter that we send to them uh that's in the postscript of that we said you know we list some 800 and 389 of you by name in this book. You should be honored and proud of your station in the global power structure, meaning that you're in the book. You're a key part of managing, supporting, protecting a world, major portion of the world's wealth. And um, you're you're part of the groups I talked about, the 30th Trilateral Commission, Atlantic Council. Um, and we don't have a prescription for changing the world. We think that... A, Addressing the world's needs and the framework of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the right place to start. We absolutely believe the continued capital concentration and neoliberal austerity policies only bring greater human misery to the vast majority of people on Earth. Um, And wars, uh, regime changes, propaganda, media, technological surveillance all in the name of protecting the freedom to do business, has to be stopped. Mm-hmm. And you have to think of that in terms of your grandchildren and their grandchildren and making decisions on the use of the world resources. So it's no longer acceptable for you to believe that you can manage capitalism to grow its way out of the gross inequalities we all face. The environment cannot accept more pollution and waste and civil unrest everywhere is inevitable at some point is inevitable at some point humanity needs you to step up and ensure the trickle down becomes a river of resources that reaches every child every family and all human beings 
We urge you to use your power to make the needed changes for humanity's survival. But we say that because they, they have the power to do that. Yeah. Nobody else does, not short of major revolution and, and total uh, economic environmental collapse. And that would be devastating for all of us. None of us would want to go through that kind of an experience. So we sort of like go along with the ride. But this book is, is saying we can't go along with the ride. And the people that are, that are you know, controlling the horses, so to speak, on the wagon need to change paths and reflect on their own activities and their own part of this. And so here's their names. Here's who they are. You guys, you guys got to stop doing this now. And um, at least, yeah, at, at least remind them of their humanity. Like, <laughs> just, I mean, how can you? Because you, you can't live in a castle forever. Sometimes you got to go outside. You can, you're gonna have to go sometime. One time you're gonna have to go to the store. Even if you have a bunch of servants, you're gonna have to get out of your little castle at some point. Uh, Peter Phillips, I want to thank you so very much for for joining us and for writing this uh, incredible book. It is um, it is very needed, and um, I just appreciate all the work that you that you do. Again, it's called Giants: The Global Power Elite by Peter Phillips. Peter Phillips has been my guest. He has been the uh, he's the former director of Project Censored and also of Media Freedom Foundation, and also he is the professor of political sociology at Sonoma State University. Peter. Do you have a website that you'd like to throw out to people? Well, the book is now available for pre-order um, at uh, projectcensor.org. It's easy to find there. Uh, just put in Giants. But it should be in bookstores everywhere in the country within the next couple of weeks. The official release date is August 21st, but you'll start to see it showing up in bookstores everywhere. But you can pre-order copies now through projectcensored.org so the uh, web address is projectcensored.org and of course you can look at it at your bookstores and it's going to be on Amazon on Jeff Bezos's place yes? It's on all of those places. All those places okay. <laughs> hey it reaches people <laughs> no, I, I, I agree and, and, but uh, I, I sort of like the idea that uh, independent book wholesalers i mean booksellers are going to have it and, and that kind of stuff yes it's, yes it's distributed by penguin random house so it it can reach everywhere fantastic fantastic again peter phillips thank you so very much for being with us today i i just so appreciate all the work you've done over the many decades Thank you. Well, Christine, it was great to be on with you. Thank you very much. And I want to thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I want to remind you, the YouTube video of this conversation is super easy to share. I encourage you to get it. You can um, share it on your social media, in emails, and that way your family and friends can hear this important conversation. And until next week, I want to remind you to always think outside of the box. Bye for now.